Hi, I'm Lisa Lloyd, and I'd like to welcome you to the second series in my podcast, Beyond the Water Cooler. In series one, we explored what we mean by employee experience, and so now we are ready to unpick the how to achieving that. As a psychologist, psychotherapist, and business owner of It's Time for Change, I meet so many talented individuals who are aligned with my mantra, get people right, get business right. I'm going to be talking to some of these super interesting people who have stories, insights, and strategies to share about what it takes to be a great company, with inspiring leadership, an awesome culture, and a wow workforce. So let's dive in. So Eric Collins, Managing Director at the Jacklock Company, is joining me today to share his experience around changing work culture including the highs and lows. And I love the fact that Eric describes starting 2019 with a spring in his step when he moved to the small but vibrant company that he is managing director of today um, after 35 years in corporate life. And that's a huge change and one that's presented many challenges. So you've had to fine tune your, your leadership skills to shape the successful and happy company that Jack Locke is today. So welcome, Eric. Thank you, Lisa. Morning to you. Um, so you really put people first, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about what you have um, learned and the specific sort of highs and lows of going through that process um, to, to enable really a company where people can thrive and to be engaged and to be really, really productive. And I know that that's something you've worked very, very hard to achieve. So I would really like to start by hearing a bit more about your story. And that's one that I know involves milk bottles and CIPD Management Awards. So tell us a little bit more about you, Eric. That's, that couldn't be more a mundane subject if you tried, could it? Young <laughs> bosses as an introduction. <laughs> the plastic ones, which is even worse, probably, in the, in, the, in the days of the environmental agenda, which we now have. Um, so a little bit about myself. OK, so um, how did I get into all this? It's pretty hard to remember. A lot of it's, a lot of it's just fell into. <laughs> As a, for want of a better word, rather than some great big plan. Mm. And perhaps I'll just talk that through because that may mean bring some context later in the conversation. So at school, I was lazy. Typical lad, I think. I was more interested in doing other things than doing schoolwork. <clears throat> I had parents who wanted the best for me and kept pressurising me. And the more they pressurised me, the more rebellious I got towards wanting to do work. <laughs> um, However, one, one thing that sticks in my head to this day, and you can tell by my receding hairline, I'm getting towards the end of my working life. <laughs> um, I, my parents went to a, a parents' evening, and back in those days, you didn't get to go with them. So you mm. waited outside um, for the inevitable bollocking. Um, my father came out of one of them and said, oh, I've been to see your maths teacher. <clears throat> he said, you're out of your depth in maths. And I think I was about 13 at the time. And actually, maths was one of the things I could do. Oh, no. And it stuck with me to this day. Um, however, cut a long story short, the upside of that is I did get an A in A-level maths. I did do an engineering degree and got a 2-1 honours degree. Engineering degree basically applied maths for those people that aren't into engineering. <laughs> um, so I kind of proved that guy wrong. Good. Um, and I think... In my head, there's a little bit of a theme of that runs through my life, really. So I went off and did an engineering degree. 
I come out of that. Um, I actually went to Aberdeen to do that engineering degree. Uh, and that would have been in 1980. And my aim then was to go up there and get involved in the offshore industry and make a load of money. And I was fortunate to get the opportunity to work offshore as a student in a summer holiday. Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> as a labourer. And it actually paid very good money, enough for me to get myself a little car to run around with at university. Wow. Tax-free money in those days. Um, but what I did find is that that lifestyle was pretty hideous. Um, two weeks on, two weeks off, and when you're there, you're captive. I was out there in the summer months, and it was pretty rough. I couldn't even start to imagine what it must be like for people in the winter months. Um, so, and also when I came back, all my mother mates were working. So I had two weeks at home. Like, what am I going to do? Mm. Mm. So that, that wasn't for me. I finished my engineering degree and joined a company called Hawker Sidley. They were a heavy engineering company um, based in Loughborough. I went through a graduate apprenticeship scheme there. And I have to say, I found it the most boring um, work activity I could ever, ever have. So I fully understand people who look at the watch and hate work and it's just a means to an end. But for me, I couldn't, I couldn't think, Christ, if this is what I've got to do for the next 30, 40 years, this is going to drive me crazy. However, I got a spirit of hope in that some of the design work we we're involved with was a manufacturing facility on, on the site. And um, some of the design work came through to go into manufacturing their questions and challenges and got asked to go down and talk to the people building the stuff. And that's where I started getting a bit of interest for manufacturing. So I left, I, uh, I started looking around for um, a job more in the sort of operational manufacturing field. And I joined a company called Nabisco, American-owned food company. They owned Smith's Crisps, Jacobs, Biscuits, people like that at the time. I went through one of these assessment centres for two days where you had to be on your best behaviour and there's people watching you at your dinner and how you interact and all this kind of stuff. I walked away from it and thought, oh, I'll never hear from them again. And then in the post, because this is pre-email days, comes, comes a letter off from me a job. Um, and it said, we're going to take you on as a, uh, a line supervisor. I thought, interesting. On shift work. And this was at Jacob's Biscuits in Liverpool. So the famous cream crackers and clubs. Yeah, yeah. So I moved, moved up to Liverpool um, thinking I was pretty much um, above the job because I got myself a degree. But it's probably the best thing I ever did because um, a lot of liver, liver puddlings are very good at um, saying it as it is mm. and cutting, cutting you down to size. And I got some very good life experience lessons there mm. and found out that some people that weren't as, um, in, the, in the privileged situation myself that had been educated formally um, were actually very bright and very capable and were quicker than me at thinking way thing, round things. So I worked there for three, three years of various shift jobs. Didn't really enjoy shift work, working night shifts, working, having to get up at four in the morning to go and start work. But a great experience um, of finding out about people. Um, I also learned some lessons there around um, sexism. Um, so I'm not gonna be too graphic about the story, yeah, but as a by way of an example, and this is how it was in those days. This would have yes. been 19, 
90, something like that, mm -hmm. the late 80s, 1990. So how it was then is generally speaking, males did the heavy lifting work. Mm. Females generally did the lighter packing work. Um, and the females generally worked a sort of an AM shift, a PM shift, a twilight shift. Um, and I had very little experience of working with females at the time. So I was running a line, a couple of production lines, making biscuits. Um, <clears throat> and a lot, predominantly, there was a lot of females involved. And I'd not seen females working in groups and ganging up. And I was the isolated male. And without being too graphic, you could probably imagine that the twilight shift was younger women who had children that came out to work, but actually for them, it was came out to play. Mm. Um, so in, in the modern world, harassment, I could have had the company for uh, harassment big time, physical, verbal, mental. Mm. Do you know what? Actually, it was bloody good fun and a good experience, but it taught me a really huge lesson mm. about how that could feel for people in a minority group. Mm. And I'm not just talking about women, I could be talking race or anything. Mm. Um, a valuable life lesson. Mm. Then left there and I wanted to get my own ship at that point rather than working shifts and handing over to somebody else so I could measure myself better. So I joined a, joined a healthcare company called Robertson Healthcare. And I was appointed there by um, a guy who's been an inspiration for me for most of my work in life. And um, he asked me to join the company um, and become a production manager in one of the factories, which I did in Manchester. Um, on my first day, this guy came across, he wasn't based at the site. He said, oh, I want to take you out for lunch. And he first day, I said, okay, perfect. He said, um, can, can you keep a secret? I said, yeah, I suppose I'll have to. He said, um, I wasn't completely true, true with you when, when I offered you the position. He said, but I saw something in you and I hope, I hope you're gonna run with this. I said, okay. He said, I'm, I, want, I want you to, Go in, learn everything you can about this factory. Then I want you to close it down um, and relocate it across to Sheffield. Would you be up for that? That's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's a challenge. So I would have been 27 or something like that at the time. I said, yeah, that'll, that'll be an interesting experience. I'll go for it. So he said, okay, you've got three months to learn it all because the plan is to announce this. I said, wow. And um, from that point forward, I started throwing myself into that, <clears throat> working lots of hours. I felt an awful snake because obviously I knew it was going to happen to a lot of people in their jobs. Um, but because I was probably ignorant a little bit, I ploughed through that mm. and did the right thing by the bigger picture of what the company wanted. Mm. Clearly, when it got announced, the fallout of it wasn't pleasant. And I was fairly ostracised in that Manchester factory, um, which I guess helped shape who you are mm. um, for the future. But we successfully closed it down. Um, I didn't get beaten up or anything like that. Um, and we relocated it and was successful and it saved a lot of money, etc. I moved on to run their biggest fact, the biggest department. And then in... Five years, five years later, I went for another job. Um, and this is where the plastic milk bottles come in. So this would have been 1994 or 1995. 
So I go for this interview. It was a blind interview written in the Daily Telegraph, advertised on Thursday. I don't know if you remember those days, Lisa. <laughs> that's, how, that's how jobs used to be, be advertised. So different. <laughs> um, so I go for this interview. Um, we have a long chat. And at the end of it, said, oh, do you want to know what the, what the business is? I said, yeah, I'd be interested to know. He said, yeah, it makes plastic milk bottles. And I thought, oh, my God, how boring. Because um, I'd always worked with an end product that was sold mm. to the consumer. Anyway, I left, I left it and I thought about it, did a bit of research at the time. I think things were moving away from the doorstep delivery into cartons and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I thought this could be quite an interesting uh, thing to get involved with. So I moved from Sheffield up to uh, Lancashire, North Manchester, and took on a factory which was underperforming in the business. Um, and that was the start of a real, a real big challenge in that I think the way it was going, it was losing money. It was offering very poor customer service to some large dairy companies in the UK. So um, I decided to go in there and stick by some principles that I'd picked up and learned from other people. Because as you know, nothing's ever original. <laughs> it's always learned from somewhere else. And um, I decided to make some change. I wanted some people around me who were hungry might not be the most experienced people. And I managed to select a team of people who um, I think must have been inspired by my vision. That factory worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including Christmas day. Wow. Um, and I took the view from the very, very start that I'm gonna be all over this because I can't expect anybody mm. to do something not prepared to do myself. Mm. And this is very, perhaps for a lot of people listening to this, this might sound quite draconian. Um, But basically, I used to go into that factory seven days a week. I'd go back in the evenings. If there was problems on the night shift, I'd have a phone next to a bed at home. Mm. I wanted to create this sense of urgency Mm. that if there was a problem on a machine that would mean stuff couldn't get manufactured, we had to sort it. Mm. Um, It worked really well for us. Um, 18 months later, that factory is the best performing factory in out of a group of eight factories making making it in the business. It was seen as a, a leading light. Um, I had great levels of efficiency, machine utilization, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Lowest levels of absenteeism, um, great, great record in health and safety. And everybody that came and visited from the wider group said it's the cleanest factory they've ever seen. And that was all down to people. Um, engaging in a journey and wanting to be the best. Mm. I think my my own view is people, colleagues in a business want to be part of something which is successful and they can feel they're a supporter and part of that journey. Mm. Um, But that's that's a huge um, cost for you and that's a real commitment in terms of you basically giving yourself sort of 24-7. We were talking a little bit before we pressed record today about the difference in styles of business and lifestyle businesses and so on and you were you know to, to drive that level of success you were basing that on key principles and surrounding yourself with hungry people and being open to learning and so on but also you gave so much of yourself do you looking back or if you were to advise someone else in a similar position now would you say that actually that's still what is needed or would you say that there is a way of achieving that that is less draining on on you as a leader 
It's a great question. Um, first of all, I don't think I ever give advice. I can only ever share experiences mm -hmm. um, because it's personal to everybody. Mm -hmm. We all have our own DNA and our own way of being. Would I have changed anything? Probably not, because I only think I think I only got that result by doing what I did. Mm. It came at some personal personal price, obviously. Mm. Family time, uh, personal time. Um, but would I have it any other way? Probably not. Um, it, it would be very easy to sit here today with a whole host of life experiences to look back and say, well, actually, I could have tuned that a little bit better. But at the time, you're hungry, you're mm. keen, you're seeing things improve. It's, it's, um, it's compelling. It's, a, it's like a drug. Um, and you just want more of it and you want it to be better and better and better if you're competitive. I'm sure, yeah, have, I'm sure yeah. you'll have viewers in here that whether it's they're, they're perhaps not competitive in the work life, they might be competitive in running or cycling or mm. whatever they do or playing sport. I think the characteristics are similar. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think when you find the thing in life, whatever that thing is, that really sparks your, you know, that's your passion and that's you are so hungry for it. Then you will always give above and beyond. You won't be watching your clock like you know. Right, you said at the start of today, that sense of when can I clock off? It's actually I just want to keep going and I want to give more. And that's yeah. and I love what you said about therefore surrounding yourself by hungry people rather than those who have the most experience. Because if we can get the right characteristics yeah. rather than who looks good on paper, who in theory should be the right person, you know, yeah, you'll the be behavior team teams. The behaviors are the most important yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. I can share with you one other one other story on this. So 24-7 operation, basically hand hand to mouth, you know, plastic mill bottles, they're, they're a lot of fresh air. You can't store many of them. Mm. So it's all very real time. And up in Manchester, this factory, they were most of the, and it was it was males that were doing these jobs. So I had an engineering team. And they were all Manchester United supporters season ticket holders, enthusiasts. <clears throat> and I vividly remember this one, this evening, uh, Manchester United were playing in the Champions League final. Big European football mm. match, it's as big as it gets. Um, and I took a phone call at home in the evening from, from the shift manager saying, well, we've got a problem on this line, blah, 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 blah. We're going to run out, not going to service somebody. So, so I get in the car, so I'm sort of 30 minutes away, I drive down to the factory. When I get there, the engineering team, all Manchester United supporters, were already there working on the machine. Oh, wow. And they'd given up their opportunity to watch their team win, win, a, win a massive game. Gosh, that one example, doesn't that just show the, the power of, having, of being completely believing in something? and wanting yeah. that to it's almost like the supporting the football team exactly. are just as invested in in that job exactly so the, that's why i was going to make the analogy between mm. sport and personal activities is, is very mm. similar to, to business and when that momentum's going the right way mm. um things become very easy mm. and you, you're working to word, words like engagement and culture mm. i've never been really a textbooky person in that mm. respect but it does fit all of those things. Oh, massively. Yeah. So, you, so that you had real success with that, that yeah. in that role. Yeah. And then well, they, they then asked me to um, take on three or four factories. 
So I was running factories in Glasgow, Manchester and Bristol. So I was traveling, doing 40,000 miles a year. <clears throat> getting more commercial, more involved with customers. Then the company um, at the time got taken over by its competitor. Who, there was two main players in that industry at the time, merged them together. So you can imagine there was a bit of a beauty parade for jobs, Lisa. Mm. Um, anyway, cut a long story short, six, I, was, I was offered the operations director of the new combined business. So I had to move down south to Milton Keynes area. Um, and we were starting a basically a synergy reduction exercise of closing some factories, opening up some new implants and dairy sites. Um, so it meant a lot of, um, sadly, a lot of job losses, but a lot of job creation as well at the same time. Mm. So that had to be handled very sensitively. Mm. We got through that. And then it was a South African business. Um, a number of years later, I was the first British born guy to be trusted to run their business. So for the last 10 years of my corporate life, I ran this packaging company. It was turning over 160 million pounds with a thousand odd employees, UK and Ireland, mm. um, servicing the dairy industry. Wow. That, yeah. I mean, the, that journey to get from where you started out to then where you ended up is quite phenomenal. In terms of what you achieved yeah it didn't seem that big to me but yeah <laughs> but when you look back and reflect and i guess when you're in it you don't necessarily see it yeah that's true that's true i've been i've been lucky um i think you do create your own luck when you work hard at anything yes um the luckier you get and you get some breaks go your way yeah and undoubtedly i was lucky um i did use um the principles of what worked for me in that in those factory jobs mm along the way where I've been very close to the people side of it um, to help me when I took over the job. Mm. The, <clears throat> on the day I took over the role, I went and sat in the MD's office. I felt very nervous. Um, the business had been performing up a quartile um, for a packaging business for a long period of time. So shareholders were quite happy. Mm. Um, and clearly a lot of the low hanging fruit had been taken Mm. through what I'd articulated to you earlier around mm. synergies of closing factories and opening up new implants on dairy sites. I sat there and thought, oh my God, what have I done? Um, I actually don't know how I'm going to keep this going. Um, and I just took a while and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back to what I know I'm good at and use those principles, which is the engagement piece, um, culture. So I said to the CEO, who's South African, and South Africans generally are a bit more direct, I think. I don't want to upset any South African friends that you'll have watching these podcasts, mm. but I don't think that they would be unhappy with that. Um, and the business was run very much on, we keep the information to ourselves for the few and the many just get told what to do. Mm. And it had to be part of that to fit that culture. Mm. So I went to the CEO and said, look, <clears throat> I'm gonna change things here. Um, it's not the way I want to work. I can't be true to myself like it. And um, people will see right, right through me. Um, so I'm going to change it. And he said, yeah, it's fine. Do what you like, as long as the bottom right hand box keeps giving me what I want to have. And um, if they don't, then you won't be here very long. I said, that's fair enough then, isn't it? We all know where we're at. Yeah. <clears throat> and we'll push on. 
So I went and articulated that vision across the business. Um, and listen, I go, you haven't got all day here. So I jumped to, we, we, the journey we went through for the first three years um, culminated in the fact that we won the Charter Institute Personal Development People Management Company of the Year Award in 2010 and their Company of the Year Engagement Award in 2010, as well as the overall one. And we were beating some big names here, Mars, Boots, Tesco's, BT. It was, it was quite a coup for us. Um, so very proud of that. And that's taken us forward. And, you know, just to finish the, the, my stories you asked, um, I came out of that corporate job after 10 years. Um, took, it took a year out to think what I wanted to do. I always wanted to have a go at rowing my own boat. I've been quite... Obviously, it spent a lot of time uh, making making money for shareholders, mm. um, which I took some reward from myself. And I thought, Joe, I just want to have a go at rowing my own boat before I finish and see what I can do. And mm. um, so I looked around for a, a small business that I could buy that had something that I that was compelling to me that I could get into. Um, and the business I now own, partly with a, with a co-shareholder of mine, um, is, a, is a world leading safety product. So we manufacture uh, window restrictors, the life-saving products mm. to uneducated people. They probably don't realize the risk of falls from window. Mm. But the Child Accident Prevention Trust statistic would tell you one child under the age of five is admitted to A&E every day in the UK with a life-threatening or fatal injury. It's quite scary. It is, isn't it? When you look quite at the stats, yeah. So I, um, because health and safety have been so important to me, that resonated to me about this business. Um, and I was lucky to bring along um, a corporate lawyer who I'd worked with for 25 years in my packaging business. He, well, he was willing to invest. So um, between us, we bought the business. Um, and I've been running it for three years now. He acts as chairman. I run it day to day, and it works very well. And is it is that an easier challenge because you are in charge of it, and, and it's your business? So you, it's almost like a blank canvas, and you can do what you want without having to seek permission. Or is it a bigger challenge because actually everything rests on your shoulders? Yeah, I think probably both, Lisa. Mm. So yes, you can make very quick decisions between myself and my business partner. Um, Equally, it's a very small business mm. um, compared to what I've been used to. So, you know, I've had to go back to raising invoices from time to time, loading lorries, delivering products to my, to my customers because I want to create an exceptional customer experience along mm. with the very best market leading product that we have. Um, so, yeah, it's been fascinating going back, doing all those things. I have to learn new skills rather than rely on other people and motivating other, motivate other people to get them these things done. It's kind of and, a full circle, really. Yeah, and I think your level of self-awareness really strikes me, Eric, in terms of, you know, so from, you know, your earlier days when you're talking about that fact that you're happy, you're okay about being cut down to size when you're the mm -hmm. line supervisor and your determination to succeed and to prove people wrong, your empathy for minority groups. And as you've taken all this, which a lot of people could have, could hold a grudge against or could just be a bit hacked off and leave and say that's not for me but you've stuck those challenges out and learned from them to help become the person you are today and, and that means you know you've talked a couple of times about 
how your key principles really guide you in terms of engagement and getting stuck in leading by example doing what you know you're good at and when people are really aware of what their strengths are and what's important to them and also have an awareness for other people around them then that shapes brilliant leadership because you can put yourself in the shoes of other people and you can also you're open-minded enough to carry on learning and to carry on developing and I think that's something that strikes me about you is that sense that you're always I've used the um analogy once about sharpening the tools in your toolbox you're always open to I could do better in this area or I could uh yeah I can use my key principles but maybe I need to just develop this aspect a little bit more and I think that sense of ongoing professional development is really really important even as you get towards the end of your career yeah and I think you know we will we all learn something new every day don't we whether that's in our personal lives working life business life friends friendship life you just come across different things every day. And I'm sure the day I drop in my box, you know, you'll still be, you'll still be seeing and learning new experiences. Mm. So you're never the finished article. My own belief is that you have to be authentic um, and be true to yourself. And I think if you're not that, people see through it very quickly. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you've, you've worked a lot of culture change. Yeah. Uh, and it's clearly hard work. And you're cut out for that, but it doesn't suit everyone, does it? Like, Absolutely not. I mean, just to pick up on that point about culture change, um, from, from my sins, having won that CIPD award, um, I got myself involved with a, a movement called Engage for Success, mm. um, guided by, I think, I think you've already had a podcast with David McLeod. Yes, he's awesome. People should definitely listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a fantastic guy. Um, and, and a lady called Nita Clark. So I got involved with this movement. And I sit as a as a sort of um, a non uh, it's not non exec, but it's a steering body type group um, with them. And one of the one of the activities we did on as I mean, that's a government led study um, around engagement. We did a thing called barriers to engagement for CEOs. So anonymously. Um, 25, I think it was, CEOs of A-listed FTSE 100 companies, amongst others, as well as private sector, big private sector, um, public sector bodies, mm. sorry, I should say, um, were interviewed. And the big thing that came out of, out of, that, of that for me, um, and there is a report that can be read if any of your mm. listeners want to look at it, um, was that most CEOs haven't got the time or don't believe they've got the time to change the culture. So they land a FTSE 100 job um, and they believe that there's an expectation from stakeholders for them to act in a certain way. They probably also realize they've got a tenure of three years, maximum five years. And, and have they got the time and energy to focus in turning an oil tanker around? Um, with, which, which culture is, it's not a short-term fix. Mm. Um, and most of them believe not, so it was a barrier to them. And hence the, you know, some of why culture and engagement perhaps never get in the uh, profile that perhaps it, it, it needs and deserves. So yeah, culture, along, along, it's a long burner. If you're gonna go into it, I wouldn't recommend 
trying to look for a quick fix because it won't work. And so I guess that's always an interesting question then, isn't it, for people who are leading companies at the moment where they know the company, the culture needs to change, but they also don't have the energy mm. or the insight or just the belief that maybe does it really need to happen or everyone's telling me it needs to happen. But, you know, there are so many, I think people are now facing so many new challenges that actually, and there's a level of exhaustion, there's a level already, particularly the last few years, that people are feeling quite drained and the whole sense of you know taking on something like company culture is as you say it's like an oil tanker it's it's enormous and it takes a long time to maneuver so I guess that's about as you said surrounding yourself with the right people yeah learning from them to get that energy going yeah for sure yeah yeah so what one thing as well that's interesting and you know part of that culture change is is the fact that more and more people are working from home now and that's shifting things quite significantly. And you commented before we ha- um, had this conversation currently about actually the impact of that on business today is that decision-making is so much slower. Yes. And it'd be really interesting to unpick that a little bit because the working from home is a reality that many organisations are now experiencing. And yes, there are there are the upsides to that but actually there are also a huge number of challenges uh, which companies are having to kind of get to grips with right now and I think that's an interesting one that hasn't been brought up before in any of these conversations so I'd really love to understand a bit more about how you think the working from home uh, kind of precedent that's happening now is actually affecting and stagnating that ability to make decisions. This is going to be interesting because it could get highly controversial. Yeah. <laughs> I like a bit of controversy. <laughs> you listen, first in context, the world of work has changed dramatically. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I think the way, the way of working that was pre-COVID, perhaps it was beginning to change slightly, where the expectation was you went and sat in an office, whether you were sitting in front of a computer for, for eight hours or nine hours and going back home or not, it was just an expectation. Um, and when you look at that, actually, it was probably quite silly. Um, you know, most most families, you've got both parents. Um, you've probably got children. Both parents are probably probably working majority of time to various levels and types of activity. So levels of flexibility clearly need to be uh, to the fore. So I don't want to come across as not acknowledging that point. Mm. So I think, it, I think, it's, I think it's, it's salient. Um, however, one of the things that we've seen um, during COVID is the ability to get decisions made um, through through customers. And a, a lot of that is, oh, sorry, um, can't get hold of them working at home. Um, and then I'll discuss with somebody who's working at home and then we'll articulate and say, oh, well, I need to pull together a number of people and that's going to take a bit of time. And I think... Mm you know historically you could have cut through that a lot quicker so we we find decision making has slowed down equally i know other people say decision making has been quicker through working at home so i guess depending upon different contexts it could it could come up very differently and is that because as a workforce you don't when you work from home you just don't come together even if it's um virtually as as often to be able to have those conversations make those decisions 
well, my, for my business, it's small, so it's easy for us. I'm talking more about yeah. our customers and, yeah. and their, and their decision-making process where they're larger, larger businesses, yes. national businesses yes. where they've got people located all over the place and, yeah. and whatever. So, yeah, I think, that, I think it has created some difficulties for sure. Um, and perhaps as we get out of COVID um, and have a, have a fresh opportunity to start, start a foot, you know, some sort of, and people speak about this word hybrid, don't they? Hybrid working. Mm. Um, a balance would, would be better where you can still get people together so that those unplanned conversations can happen um, just when you see people. Yeah. And you can get through things. Oh, yeah, I was talking to such and such. What do you think about? Like, yeah, so let's do that. So things, you know, things can move on quite quickly. There yeah. don't have to be a formal Teams or Zoom meeting where you've got 15 people around. Um, and my own experience of those type of meetings is they're very transactional they're not very transformational yeah and keeping a number of people engaged in that is very difficult because I mean the reality is people do switch off and look at their mobile phone they take the take the camera off they take the voice off uh, it's not particularly engaging yeah I know and I think actually what you're saying has been echoed a lot with different leaders I've spoken to about the need for hybrid working you can't if you want people to be um, able to be transformative rather than just transactional and creative and to be able to be spontaneous in terms of ideas that come up or to be able to observe and comment or ask these little questions you need to be around each other you need to be um, you need to have those natural opportunities for that kind of organically to happen and so that sense of that balance it always comes back to balance doesn't it um but where people can get together physically and just be around each other. And that's when those moments, those aha moments happen. <laughs> I think back to what we've just spoken about my journey and story, you know, I don't, if the people weren't together, those things would never have happened. Yeah. 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 And that, that's a definite. So going back to, I mean, everything you've done, because you're focusing on people, you're focusing on culture, you're sort of focusing on, you're focusing on the people side of the business. What what do you think the benefits are for your brand? So, because obviously you're only going to be doing this if there's if there's a benefit, but mm. the benefits for your brand, I guess, can be quite broad. Of course. So look, I think I take I take the view here, I think you used at the start of, of this podcast that I treat I treat the business, my viewing lens is very much I'm a customer customer of the Jacklock business. Yeah. And, and try and keep that focus when I'm dealing with all our stakeholders. So whether that's suppliers, whether it's uh, customers, and we both, we, and we do B2B and B2C market here. Mm. And my attitude is to treat everybody the same. So I, I can take phone calls here from, from a, a homeowner that's worried about security of somebody breaking in from the window, or they're worried about the child getting out. And they want to talk through the nth degree of it. It might take me forty minutes. I might sell one product mm. worth about twelve pounds, so mm. you can quickly do the sums and work out mm. I'm making any money out of that time. But I don't ever know who I'm speaking to down the telephone. You know, they could be the friend of somebody who's really, really great opportunity for my business. Yeah. Um, they could be um, a partner of somebody. It could be who knows. So advocacy is massive 
um, I, I believe. Yeah. So I want every interaction that people have with Jacklock to be a positive experience. There's no point in having a great product and not backing it up um, with, with the same. So we treat everybody the same and, you know, somebody phones up, they might want to talk to us for 10 minutes and we might sell a thousand products, you know, it just, <laughs> it just, yeah. I think you just, you've just got to be consistent um, and give, give people the, the time that they want. And, you know, I think it works for you overall. And I think that's such a good point because that time, it comes back to how people have got time to send the oil tank around and have we got time to have the conversations that really matter? Have we got time to listen? Yeah. And it's always the time that's this big, probably one of the biggest barriers. I don't have time to do all this stuff. But actually when we realise, when we put the value on that time and actually say that is the thing I've got to make the time for, it's to create more time rather than it almost being an aside, I've got other things that are more important. Yeah, yeah no, I would agree with you. I think when people want some of your time, mm. um, there's nothing more powerful than giving people your quality of your time mm. and letting them feel that. And I think you know, that can only can only help you in the future and also that stands for your workforce doesn't it so hmm. if you're if you're the people who are in your company know that they've got your attention and hmm. they're able to feedback and they're able to make suggestions and they're able to in fully engage because it feels right for them and of course that's going to benefit their well-being um then that's just going to drive up performance and productivity there was a really interesting report which you may well have seen the Gallup State of the Global Workforce 2022 report. Um, I haven't seen it, Lisa. No. You should have a look. So it talks about globally, the fact that employee engagement and well-being are still low, which is not surprising. And obviously not surprisingly, it's then holding back enormous growth potential. But I think what's alarming for me are some of the stats around that. So 33% of employees, um, this, report, this report found, are thriving globally and although Europe looks better because it's 47 percent mm. figure masks the fact that that's actually a five percentage point decrease in Europe uh so, is it, so in other words it's going the wrong direction that's something yeah. we can't just say it's fine we're, we're better than the rest of the world um globally 44 percent of employees experienced stress a lot during the previous day which is the highest over the last 12 years and I guess for me, the real concern here is that employees can be engaged at work, which we know, but if they're not thriving, they have a 61% high likelihood of ongoing burnout than those, than those who are engaged and thriving. And the number, the statistic around those employees who are engaged and thriving globally is only 9%. Scary, which isn't is, it? Which is really alarming. And you Scary. just think your ability to engage people, your ability to thrive that has got to come from your ability to uh, engage, to, to be safe enough to be yourself, to be authentic, to be heard, to, to just be able to use your strengths and to do something that drives you and you're passionate about. And everything that actually you've talked about over your career journey, you've, you've been open to getting stuck in and when something's not quite right, you learn from it, you shape it differently. Yeah. And for sure, you know, we've all made lots of mistakes and some things that you regret and some decisions you make that you regret. Mm. But, you know, you just have to take those and learn from them, don't you? Mm. 
we were talking just 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 then about um, people within your business. Um, if you if have you heard of a guy called Steve Ratcliffe? Yes. So he he works on a thing called FED, which is Future Engaged Deliver. So I give him the acknowledgement here. This is not my, this is his. <clears throat> but it's something that's helped me in my life. And he, he pretty much talks about the power of relationships as, as part of this, that are the relationships big enough to get the job done? Mm. And you know, buy his book or read his book. With, <laughs> I'm not going to, um, but, you know, one of the things that come out of it is if the relationships are big enough, out of strong, positive relationships, you can create possibilities. And out of possibilities, you can create opportunity. Out of opportunity, you can create plans. And out of plans, you get results. Mm. And he talks, shows, talks about a pyramid. So the relationship sits on the bottom of the pyramid. Mm. Things go up. So the smaller the relationship, the smaller the little triangle result at the top, the bigger the relationship, the bigger the little triangle for results at the top. And that, you know, I think it's so true. So, so true. Um, and that's not about saying all your relationships have got to be absolutely fantastic. It's important to pick out the relationships you need with the relevant people doing the relevant jobs and are they strong enough to help you get the job done. Yeah, and I have to say as well, the people who you like least, you need to get to know better because you're trying to find, you, you need to have some connection, don't yes. you? So even if you're not, doesn't mean you've got to have, then it can be best buddies, but well, actually- you, Not about that at all. Yeah, you need to have a, have a shared sense of respect for each other and be able to have good conversations with each other about what you know your shared interest is in that organization yeah. you can't just avoid each other and unfortunately that's what happens too often you know I don't like that person they're a bit tricky to stay clear of them and, it, and of course you just have a complete breakdown then of those relationships it's, it's the classic one isn't it when you're sat in an office there's somebody you don't really connect with mm. and you, you hear them coming down the corridor and you just bury your head down and you can do and hope they don't come in and want to talk to you yeah. Whereas the person you get on and you've got a great um, connection with, you can co-invent with, you can get things done with, um, you stop, you want to engage, you want to talk yeah. to them, you enjoy it, the time goes quick. So, and, and also, I think, stuff really. you know, that whole need for positive conflict. So everyone, you know, people tend to shy away from conflict, but when we have positive disagreement and we're able to challenge and so on, that's really healthy and that's what's needed for growth and um you know, to make necessary change, to make things work better. Mm. But you can only have positive conflict if you've got the relationships there. Yeah. Because you've got to have that level of trust and that level of respect. To be better to open it up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point you make. So you talked once about four energies that drive you. Mm. Well, that's, those have come from Steve Ratcliffe as well. So okay. but he, he talks about physical energy. Mm spiritual energy, emotional energy, and intellectual energy. And so I say, we've all got a natural leaning to one of those energies. Um, so physical energy is about the hard work, guiding, taking the right decisions, mm. taking feedback, hard work. Mm. The spiritual energy is more from the soul. So this is about having a vision, a story, a journey that we're all gonna go mm. on and, and everybody understands where we're going. The, emotion, the emotional piece is from the heart. This is where 
it's the caring, it's the connection, the relationship mm -hmm. piece we've just been speaking to. And the intellectual energy, obviously, is the power of being able to put in brainstorming and getting things done and getting actions out. Um, and what he talks about is we'll all have a natural leaning towards one of those energies. And the, the good leaders are able to kind of harness and grow their strengths in the other areas as well. Mm. So they're bringing parts of all those energies every day rather than just one specific one. Mm. So by way of an example, somebody who is a, um, a doctorate style, who's a researcher, you know, it's probably going to be heavily intellectual energy. Mm. And the other, the other energy is probably not so strong. Mm. Um, you know, just by way of an example. And you could probably create others for the other energies. But to be a rounded, authentic, effective leader, he encourages you to grow your, sharpen your sword and grow those yeah. skills and make sure those energies are prevalent for people to see. And that's so important. That comes back to that level of self-awareness, isn't it? About knowing what think, energies yeah. you find, you know, you're more naturally aligned with and which ones you need to work on and actually making sure that you're surrounding yourself and your team with yeah. a balance so you don't have one very dominant one and and, and then other people feeling marginalized yeah. no great point so um before we wrap up and and i'd love to hear from you in a minute about some sort of two or three actions that you i know you don't like to give advice but from your experience you could share so two or three things that you would you would be saying to people actually these are the things that if you went away and did differently today or focused on did more of that actually potentially you could make um a real positive difference for your company culture but before we come on to that when we think about company culture there's always this um sort of there can be this difference in, in terms of who's leading that agenda who's driving that so whether it's the leadership or whether it's the hr people and um I know my view and I'll share that in a minute, but it'd be really interesting to know from your experience, who do you see as being the people who are most, most often in the position of driving culture change? I think sadly, it's it, it often, in many businesses, it sits with HR's little mm. box. Mm. You do that fluff, soft, fluffy stuff. Mm. Um, the experience of engage for success and certainly I would totally share it, is that unless the leader leaders of the business are committed to it, it will never work. Yeah. So you could have the brightest HR people in, in, the, in, your, in your business, but if it's not coming from the top, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Total waste of time. And, you know, that's one of the things we've spoken a lot about in Engage Success is how do we connect with the leaders rather than as a lot of HR people always want to get involved and engage with success we're mm. actually they're already in the choir as it were yes we're, we're 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 looking to reach out to people that aren't in the choir mm. who are the leaders and mm. the inspirers and the the vision makers in the business mm. to get them to see whether they can see the picture and by the way listen culture change isn't the answer for everybody you can get some great results using other methods very quickly mm. It, it just depends what your vision and story you're telling to your colleagues is. Yes, and I think some people are missing that story. They don't mm. really know what their vision is. They yeah, don't well, really without, know. without a hook, what, what, what are you working exactly. for? What are you leading for? Exactly. 
and that, that's one thing I'm, I'm doing today is um, a session around how to create a strategy and implement a strategy across the company and that's based around you've got to know what it is you want to try and what you're trying to achieve rather than just grabbing things because they sound good they sound the thing of the moment and then having a go at it and they're not really working so you've got to, it's got to fit in under the kind of a shared vision where everyone knows their part in that and it's and all the dots are joined up across the whole organization so everyone knows their role rather than as you say just having HR over here leading it or whoever has, happens to be wearing the hat that day and if I could just add to those points, Lisa, which um, are very, very compelling, is for me would be to say, and people need to want to believe in that. Because if it's not for them, then you need to manage that in a proper way and let them go off and work somewhere where it is going to be the right environment for them. <clears throat> so, you know, that, that story and vision isn't for everybody. And I think it's important that if people don't want to be part of that, that's their choice. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Mm. It's, you know, some, some people just don't want to see that picture and want to do something a different way. And that's absolutely fine. Mm. And you've got to help them find somewhere where they can be happy and give it their best. Love that. Because it's that recognition that not everyone's going to fit the, totally. the, the, the vision, but then you're not... Uh, criticizing them or judging them badly for that it's just doesn't make them a bad person does it it doesn't make them incompetent it just means that the values and the vision don't fit Mm. but they could be brilliant in another business yeah or or even another team yeah yeah so what would be your um two or three actions that you think would be really good for business leaders to be implementing now to make a real difference for employee engagement? If they see engagement as a, as a way forward for their business, so that is a vision that they have. Um, I think we touched on making time for people is important and not let people feel that you're fobbing them off and rushing, rushing things through. Mm. Um, I think that's really important. And there's a few people have helped me on my way in life and they've, they've operated in that way. So mm. I've learned from that and thought, well, do you know what, that worked for me. Hopefully that will help other people as well if I can do that. Mm. Stop and take the time, listen. Two ears, one mouth, use them in those proportions might be a good, a good um, tip. Um, and just make people feel that they're valued and they're wanted and needed. I think that's certainly for me, that's what I feel I need in my life. I don't think, I think most humans are the same. Mm. <laughs> whether that's in Basic personal, human need. Whether that's in a personal relationship, a friendship relationship or a business relationship, you need to feel wanted and, mm. and needed and part of something. So that would be one. I think the other one is if you're in a big business, which is driven by shareholder results, <clears throat> You can't just pick and choose when you want to do things. Um, you, you deliver result X one year, it's the result's going to need X plus three the following year. So mm. um, you've got to be looking for marginal points of difference. And I often use this analogy about, and I, I am not this person at all, but I do acknowledge it. 
so the, the people that do um, Tour de France riding bikes. Mm. So I don't know what I'm talking about, but I've read a little bit. <laughs> I know the people that reach the very top of that are doing absolutely anything, anything to find that one half a, half a second or whatever it is mm. to set themselves away from the other probably 5,000 who are all elite athletes mm. or elite cyclists. Mm but they're finding two or three little gems that are just going to make the difference so they can win. Mm. I think that's, that's pretty much the same in business. I think you can't just ever sit back and think, Oh, that's great. We've done it this year. You've already got to be looking halfway through this year about how you're going to achieve what next year is and what you're going to do to pick up those little, little points of difference. And then my third thing perhaps would be, which we already discussed, is treating people the same regardless of who they are. So whether that's um, somebody that's doing a very uh, repetitive job in a business, or whether that's somebody that's the absolute brains of Britain, adding value in another way, all jobs are important or else you wouldn't have them. You'd get, you wouldn't have the cost and therefore respect and value those people. That's something that I think is important. Do I always get that right? I've been called out for it, but I don't sometimes because I'm human and human beings make mistakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, if your antennae are up and you can learn from it, then you've got a fighting chance. I don't think anybody expects you to be perfect anyway. They don't. And I think actually I was having this conversation yesterday um, talking about the fact that we need to be, it needs, your environment needs to be safe enough that you can call out yeah. things regardless of who that person is. Yeah. And there was someone quite uh, new to the company in the room yesterday, and he was saying he wouldn't necessarily feel very comfortable calling out um, the managing director if they were not staying very aligned with um, the behaviours and values and mm. everything that they've, that are so important to them and their culture. And we, we were unpicking that a little bit about actually just start with who you just, start with where you feel you are are comfortable so when you notice things that aren't uh don't feel right don't sound right then just have the courage to call that out where you feel comfortable and trust that other people will if everyone has that shared uh, approach then trust that other people who have been there longer will be calling out the behaviors of the more senior people and actually there's more senior people consistently say um, I'm open to feedback and I know I can make mistakes and I, you know, I know I don't get always get things right. Then one day you'll have the courage to say, do you realize you just did such and such? Yeah. Or, and you can make a bit of a joke about it. So it's a lighthearted way. And then you're really testing out the proof that this person's everything that they, they, they say they are. And yes, I believe that this person is, you know, the MD is, is what they say, but you've got to have the confidence to be able to do that. And the more you see them modeled around you, everyone standing to account and calling out things and rather than just joining the gospel letting things go on unchallenged um you know that becomes the norm mm. yeah great i think a great point you make safe environment's critical absolutely critical safe environment okay so finally dan sudegren who was my guest last week has provided a blind question for you eric and this is a blinder of a question <laughs> so where do you see the future of artificial intelligence in the next five years? Um, 
I'm absolutely stumped. I've got no experience of it. Yeah. And I'd be waffling a bullshit answer. I can't help you. No, but I think that's a good answer. And I think actually that is a an answer that a lot of people, if they're honest enough, would also give. Because I think AI is so still so relatively new. Yeah. That there is a certain generation of people who are like, yeah, this is the wave, the future, and so on. There is a massive group of people who are like, I don't know how that's relevant to me. I just don't know how this is going to look. I can't get my head around it. I've seen some of it. I think it's fascinating, but I just don't know enough about it to comment. No. Sadly. <laughs> well, maybe we need to get Dan talking about a bit more about how, how what he thinks is going to make the difference in the next five sure. years. And that's something he talks a lot about. Um, the, one, the one thing for certain is, Different, different techniques are going to be right for the future. So perhaps some of the things I've spoken through today don't, don't fit some of the future, yeah. some of it. Yeah. What I do think, however, is people are human beings, treat them as human beings. That's never going to change. We're not going to have robots doing every job. And that is a great point. And that's the point I made when Dan and I talked uh, on a previous podcast about the fact that you can have all this amazing tech and mm. um but it's moving away from people and people interactions and yeah. human connection and so on and and my point to him i was making it because my husband's uh, a techie um is that actually you you can never replace the need for human connection uh, totally. and i think if we keep that at the heart of what we do other things can benefit yeah. Uh, they can drive improvement and drive change and so on but actually at the core you've still got to have that humans what you talk about relationships that human interaction that trust yeah I think just listen to people even if you don't give them the answer they want to hear as long as you give them a reason and explanation mm. people generally accept that and move on mm. um, and that's never going to change and I'm sure that's been the case since the year BC to whenever whenever it's never going to change whilst there's yeah. human beings around. And, you know, leadership is, isn't complicated. A lot of people try to make it very complicated. I think it's just, you know, take people on a journey, be consistent with your vision and accept that we're all different people. We all like different things and we all get better at doing certain things than others. And just be mindful of that. That's an awesome place to finish. That that says so much. Eric, can I thank you hugely for joining me today? Because not only are you taking your time out to have this conversation, but recovering uh, from having COVID. And I can you you're doing you've done a very good job of um, trying not to cough throughout and sort of kind of discreetly sipping water and so on. Um, and I can hear your voices a bit wobbly. Up and so, down. Yeah, I've tried okay. to hold the coughing in. <laughs> So I am so grateful. Um, you're made of tough stuff, obviously. Thank you. Um, if if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that best? Is that I mean, we'll put your contact details in the show notes. But do you have a preference for how people might reach out if they want to chat to you more? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so if anybody okay. wants, to perhaps use that as, a, as the safest, quickest medium. I do look at it every day. Yeah. Awesome. So if somebody, if somebody wants to share share some stories and. And some some battle some battle stories and I'm happy happy to talk to them. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time, Lisa. 
Thank you so much for joining me today on the Beyond the Water Cooler podcast. I hope it's got you thinking about how you can make a real difference to company culture that really helps people to engage and thrive. To shape things to provide the most value, I need your help. Please can you rate the podcast and review it to let me know what you have enjoyed and found helpful. Maybe you also have ideas about specific topics or guests who you would like to hear from in the future. If you'd like to explore any of the points covered in these episodes further, particularly about how they are relevant to you or your company, I would love to hear from you. So let's continue the conversation. Email, connect with me on LinkedIn, or why not pick up the phone? I love to walk and talk, and my details are in the show notes. Please do let me know what inspires you, because that way I can make sure that what I'm talking about is most helpful. So I'm taking a break now for the summer to enjoy all things family. So look out for notification about the next episode in September, which you can get from subscribing. It's going to be a good one. My last 10 guests will be sharing the advice that they would have given themselves 10 years ago, what they have learned that they want to take into the future and what they would choose to leave in the past. And there are some really interesting nuggets of wisdom in there. So I'll catch up with you then. Bye for now.